0: Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today, we're joined by Daniel McGrail, CEO of Renewable UK. We'll delve into his own renewable energy journey, the nuances of wind power, and the UK's commitment to a greener economy. Welcome, Dan. Yeah, welcome to Racing Green. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Great. Uh, Well, I I wonder if we could start by just uh, getting some background on yourself and how you 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 came to work in the renewable sector?
1: Okay, so um, I I've worked in energy now for well since basically since I finished university, I joined a big German engineering company, a lot of people might know called Siemens, um, uh, on their graduate program when I was uh I'll uh, be just over twenty years ago now, um, and. Um, And I was, I was really lucky because it's, you know, it's a company where you can, you you, you can move around a lot and experience a lot of different things. So um, around about the time I joined, Siemens bought a wind power, um, wind turbine manufacturing company um, based in Denmark. They're quite a small company at the time, but you know they brought their kind of corporate might and grew it quite a lot. So um, a few years after I I joined um, the company, I got involved in um, uh, trying to help the. Um, the, the the Danish headquarters find somewhere in the UK to build a factory because um, they wanted to build the sort of offshore wind was really starting to grow in, in Britain. Uh, Britain was by far the, the the biggest market in terms of sort of ambition. Um, so the UK was a really logical place to build um, a factory. And uh, But the Danish headquarters needed some help and, and I, I got involved in A, trying to find a location for it and B, trying to find some funding uh, from government um, to assist with some of the investments that needed to be made, uh, and I spent four years doing that. I ended up going to Denmark for a couple of years to work in the headquarters there, and um, and now we we built a factory which is now in Hull. Um, about a, a thousand people uh, work in that lo- location making uh, making blades um, for huge offshore turbines. We we'll they'll be making the sort of the biggest blades in the world uh, fairly soon. Uh, in that factory, so it's quite a, it was quite an achievement fairly early on in my career, uh, and then um, I I went into um, I, I I ran the UK sort of big power generation business, so sort of working in sort of maybe more conventional power generation using gas and and uh, and energy from waste and things like that, and did that for a few years, and then I went to Spain with the company uh, 2018. Uh, I ran a, a global product line. Um, which was into sort of more small scale uh, uh, energy, um, and then uh, Renewable UK came knocking for me because uh, w- whilst I'd been uh, doing that factory job earlier on in the decade, um, I, I got a lot involved with sort of lobbying government for policy change and helping make uh, the, the environment right for, for for the for the industry to thrive. And and so when the, the vacancy came up, they uh, they thought of me, which was a real a real privilege. Wow yeah, I've been, I've been in the job for two years now and I love it. I really
0: love yeah. it. Excellent. Well, uh, tell us about Renewable UK and its members. So, so Renewable UK started life in the, in the 1970s, believe it. It
1: was then called the British Wind Energy Association. It was founded by four uh, academics and uh, entrepreneurs who were at the right at the beginning of the renewable energy uh, boom. Um, I, I suppose at the time it wasn't a boom. It was more of a, an academic could could wind turbines be uh, you know play a, re, a real role in the energy system um, and then it was rebranded in 2012 to uh, renewable uk to take into account a more diverse portfolio of, of renewables that the association was was following but it, but at our core we're, we're a, we're a member led association we've got our 500 um, members of all sorts of different types of companies who are predominantly involved in either developing uh, and operating uh, wind farms pre- mainly, but also tidal energy, uh, uh, marine uh, energy, um, and then storage and, and uh, hydrogen um, production and these types of things, um, and all the supply chains, so all the companies who are involved in sort of making those things happen um, uh, from a, either from a technology perspective or from an engineering perspective uh, and so on and so forth. So we bring all of that membership together. And we work on on really you know a couple of things to so sort of trying to break down the barriers to 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 make sure that renewable energy can be built um at scale um which, so trying to shape the, the 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 legal landscape uh in which uh or the regulatory landscape in which the industry operates um trying to drive things like skills development across the country so we've got access to the people we need to build the industry trying to build the 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 the, the industry the factories to the, uh, the 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 technology and innovation that's needed in the country and really just sort of trying to develop the also the the international profile of britain as a as an as a place to to invest in this in this industry so you know we've got a um a quite a wide, wide range wide, wide ranging job but also one which is quite challenging but also incredibly fulfilling as well so yeah quite a privileged place to be in the industry
0: okay so Let's talk wind power now. People like me, um, not scientists, you know. How does it actually work? So, um, fairly simplistically, we've been using
1: wind power for you know throughout history, right? We've been you know we've been milling our flour, we've been powering our boats with the power of the wind. Um, but a wind turbine um, really accesses the wind using its blades. So the blades are, are you know the typically wind turbines you see are have got three. Big blades. Uh, the bigger the blades and the higher up they are, the more wind they can capture, typically. And that is really the power, that's the engine of of the of the of the machine is the is as, as the rotor, which is capturing the wind. And tip a wind turbine, modern wind turbines, they what we call pitch in your. So basically what that does is is when the wind direction changes, the turbine changes oh, okay. to face the wind, and the blades <clears throat> To capture the the maximum amount of wind that they can, as well, so they kind of uh, fully maximize the, the the power that is the energy that is available in the wind, and it turns it into electrical energy in the in the middle part of the turbine, which is called a nacelle, um, which is basically the, the 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 powertrain. So in that, most turbines will have a gearbox, so it turns that slow rotation of the of the blade into a faster speed, and then it uses what, what is essentially quite a conventional Generator to turn it into electricity. And, um, and then that will travel down a wire in the tower of the turbine and connect into a substation uh, and join the national grid. Um, it's sort of interesting things about turbines is even though usually when you're looking at them on the horizon, they look like they're turning pretty slowly, um, the tip of an offshore wind turbine, the biggest ones, will be typically traveling around about 180 to 200 miles an hour. So even though it doesn't look like it's moving
0: quick, it is. Wow. Well, yeah. So we, you know, wind energy in the UK has become a much more important part of our of our energy um, profile. Uh, is that is that correct? Is it? Are we? Is there more wind energy now out there um, than there was? You know, ten years ago. Absolutely. I mean, for the, for, for those you who don't follow the energy industry
1: in detail, I mean, it's one of those sort of quiet revolutions that happened over the last decade or so is that wind power has gone from being a really small part of the energy system, maybe powering, you know, maybe at the turn of 2010, it was maybe responsible for powering about a million, million and a half homes at that time. Now, last year, we provided enough electricity to power about 22 and a half million homes, right? So so that is, you know, about 45% of the electricity on the system last year came from from wind power alone. So it's a really really significant part of our system. On any given day, um, wind power can be providing over half of the electricity, and that's part of a mix when you add it with solar and with nuclear, which are all zero carbon forms or very low carbon forms of electricity. Then you know our our grid is moving to a point where it's kind of sixty five to seventy percent carbon free. Obviously, depending on what the weather is like on it, on 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 that day, obviously the times when it isn't as as windy, then we're using gas to balance the system and things like that. But the rest of the time, you know, we've got a, a huge role in the UK energy system now. Mm. The vast majority of that in the UK is coming from offshore wind. So we've built a lot, and we're building even more. Um, today there's about what we' are talking in megawatts, which is kind of units of electricity about 14,000 megawatts of onshore energy, and there's about sixteen thousand of offshore but by by the time we get to two thousand thirty there'll be a lot more on the onshore on the offshore side, so it will be a a really really important part of our our energy
0: system trend so trend is definitely to offshore you're saying absolutely yeah i mean yeah in the, yeah, the u k um since 2015,
1: and with the when the Conservative government came in 2015, they banned the use of onshore wind turbines in England. They're still allowed in Wales and, um, and in, in uh, Scotland. Um, and uh, it, I say effectively banned, I should probably say that to be, to be tr- correct, correct because, uh, but that uh, but, but ultimately offshore is where the, the, the political emphasis has been for wind power developments in Britain, largely because we've got really shallow seas. Which means it's quite easy to build offshore, and we've also got a very, very good wind resource um, in the North Sea and the Irish Sea. Where, uh, yeah, well, it goes. I'll put too fine a point on it. We have plenty of wind, as a, a recent uh, this summer has demonstrated.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. That's great news. And how does the UK compare to other European markets? Do you benchmark yourself, or you know, like your organisation against? Well, the, well, the, do you benchmark the nation against? what other European cities perhaps are doing.
1: Yeah, so, so in, in terms of offshore wind, we are the um, world league, well, the well, sec- we're the second biggest, uh, the UK is the second biggest uh, market or installed. Um, we've got, we, let me rephrase that. We've got more wind turbines offshore installed in the UK than anywhere else in the world apart from China, right? And Really? Compared to... Um, uh, Europe and, and China really have been the only places which have built wind turbines offshore so far. Now, we're seeing that change. Yep. Um, uh, America is is really uh, looking to grow. Even parts of Australia are uh, analysing offshore wind and Latin America. Well, but, but up to date, it's really been Northern Europe and China that's done it. And of that, the UK has been the, le- the, the leader. Um, and even looking forward, we've got the second biggest pipeline for new projects in the world than, um compared with uh with the exception of China so offshore we really are we really are at the, at the vanguard of the technology when it comes to onshore we are behind our competition that's because we've not been building really um uh, anywhere near enough onshore wind um over the last decade primarily because because of government policy and um and and, and frankly uh, very, very challenging conditions to actually get perm building permits in in this country um, for for onshore wind turbines, which which really do slow it down, frankly. Right? Yeah, I,
0: I, and is there is there any physical reason why we don't have more um, on onshore um, turbines? Because you know, traveling on the Eurostar, you just see plenty traveling into. Places like Austria, you you see, you see wind turbines on shore in, other, in lots of other places. Uh, is there a is there a rationale other than political, um, uh, or, you know, or, or sort of let's say um, the communities don't want them? Perhaps or, yeah. I mean
1: I, I mean first of all I mean, dealing with the community acceptance uh, I, I mean I, I can quote you some figures and just in terms of polling we did some polling recently and, and it's it's really interesting when you look at it you know so seventy eight percent of people from polling support onshore wind and only five percent oppose it right and there's no correlational statistic that says. The closer you get to a wind turbine, the, the the less likely you are to support it. Actually, it's actually not not really noticeable. Um, every single constituency in the UK, we you know, this is really interesting, including you know, very strongly conservative constituencies are big supporters of, of onshore wind. So it's it's it's, it's really interesting. But it's just clearly there's a very, there's a small minority of people who are opposed to it, and onshore wind farms tend to bring with them like big community benefit. Um, schemes so help uh, invest in things like um, infrastructure, EV charging, things like this within within local communities as well. So generally, they're they're, they're well accepted. However, there is a constituency of people that doesn't um, support them as strongly as they might. Um, however, when it comes to the physical reasons, the you know developers of wind farms are going to look for areas where the wind speeds are the strongest. Um, and that that tends to lead us to Scotland. So you will see there are very some very significant wind farms in Scotland. Some of the biggest ones uh, in Europe actually are onshore in Scotland, and clearly that 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 is because there are there are excellent wind resources. Um, and that's less the case the further south you get. That's just kind of a, a reality. Um, but also you typically coastal areas on the East Coast. So even now, you know, in England, if you travel up sort of through parts of East Anglia, through Lincolnshire, uh, through parts of Yorkshire, you will see reasonable sizes of of onshore wind farms. So it's not like we don't have any, it's just that we probably could do with more. Yeah.
0: And the economics of, of installing onshore versus offshore, is there a, I mean, I would assume that it's much more expensive to to go offshore because it's just there's just more effort, but I, I, I may be wrong on that one. There's no question the engineering challenge is greater offshore, but
1: there is a distinction which is that offshore we can use much bigger turbines. Oh. Um, so the typical size of an onshore turbine today is about five megawatts. That won't mean most people mean an awful lot to most people, but it, you know that's that's about you know enough for um, sort of five thousand homes. Um, and the offshore we can go to 15 to 20 megawatts which is kind of where the market is at today so you know and that basically means building much taller turbines with much bigger rotors but because they're away from you know the shore because they're away from people's view because they're away from um any sort of limitations on height then they can go much bigger and and that mm. brings the cost down because the bigger the turbine the more electricity so even though you're building You know, subsea cables and a substation and and foundations and things offshore. And those things, are you right, all add costs. That can all be distributed over more electricity. So, what we saw recently last year's auction is actually um, the prices of offshore energy or offshore Um, wind electricity is cheaper than it is onshore, which is quite remarkable when you think Mm -hmm. about that engineering challenge. And just shows you how much the technology does the talking here, and and, uh, and and you know benefits consumers.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and can sorry for the naive question here, but um, can you pipe um, the energy from of, of, you know to, you know large distances to a grid, or is there a theoretical limit that you can you can only transport that energy until you have to get it into a grid? I can give you a really technical answer to that, but basically the way it works is every wind turbine offshore
1: um, will run a cable to a collect what they call a collector substation. So you'll build a substation offshore on a platform, and then that will gather that electricity up and send it to shore. Now that can be done in what we call AC and and alternating current. That that is that that has a theoretical limit because you start to lose a lot of the electricity. The further the distance, so about eighty kilometers, 900 hundred kilometers offshore, you have to then go to high voltage, which then means means building a much bigger substation, essentially with different technology, and you transform all that electricity up to a really high voltage, like four hundred kilovolts, and then send it to shore, and then you don't lose it. But it's a bit, but it's a lot more expensive to build that substation. So, but it's um, yeah, and 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 I suppose the interesting thing on this. You know for your listeners and just kind of thinking about a, a more interconnected world is that you may you know we we have a number of electricity cables that connect the uk to france so to belgium to netherlands to, to norway uh soon and also to ireland and therefore our electricity system sort of is, in, is interconnected with with those countries and what one of the things we're looking at now as an industry is connecting our wind farms into those cross-border connections so you can send the electrons either you can send them one way or you can send them the other to help a you know an interconnected grid um, uh, work in a more efficient way which is which is really interesting because it starts to help you balance out the, 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 the where the wind is blowing and you know transport the electrons to where they're really needed
0: because mm. we do import energy from Norway as well hydroelectric yeah.
1: Yeah, we, we've got a, an interconnector which which connects the two countries and um, hy that you know Norway is a hydroelectricity con- uh, country. something about ninety percent of its electricity is provided by hydro, there uh, thanks to the geography there. So in a in a theoretical world, you can have a really windy day in the North Sea where we're sending electricity to Norway, and then you have a less windy day where they release the uh, the taps. And the uh, the hydro the, the hydroelectricity uh, comes comes out our way, but you know that that's kind of theoretical. I mean, there'll be nuances on that, but ultimately, you know, it, it is it is one of the options that we've got when we think about all the different electricity sources around uh, around Europe and how they can connect together, and work in tandem. Mm.
0: So, just looking at the UK, you, you mentioned Scotland. That's absolutely um, is is effectively most of the UK. Um, uh, you know available sort of uk shoreline um uh, uh, ready or, or or right for 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 wind energy well i mean sort
1: if, if you're looking at offshore wind yeah i mean the where, where we've built the most to date has been in the, the southern north sea so off the east coast around the lincolnshire coast east anglia um the northeast um and there's relatively little off the south coast. There's one quite big wind farm called Rampion, which you can see from Brighton. Um, and then off the west coast, which is sort of my area, um, we, we, some of the earlier wind farms were built in the Irish Sea because the water uh, was much shallower here, so it was kind of easier to sort of um, to do those initial uh, wind farms. So uh, some of the early ones you can see out of Liverpool Bay and then some, uh, it, it, and then some off the north Welsh coast, and some off the, the filed Coast into sort of uh, Cumbria. Um, so that kind of northern part of the, of, the, of the island, both sides, we've seen a reasonable amount of growth. Mm. Where we will see growth in offshore wind in the future um, is um, off the northern coast of Scotland, um, uh, so particularly sort of the North Sea side. Um, there will be some on the, on the, on the west coast as well and then in what we call the Celtic Sea which is a term that's not used an awful lot but it's kind of the southern part of the the, the Irish Sea sort of if you think of the Bristol Channel and between the Bristol Channel and Ireland there's a big a lot of potential there and in particular the 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 sort of the big emerging trend in those areas is that you're getting into deeper water and um, that's a big area today of sort of our engineering efforts and our um I would say our innovation is how we make wind turbines float, so they can be uh, in in water depths which are uh, beyond the reach of a, of a very conventional offshore turbine.
0: Wow, is there any theoretical limit to how many, you know, how much power we could get out of the UK? And um, do you feel that, um, you know, in an, you know, as they say, caterus paribus in economics, or uh, in an ideal world? Um, could, could wind power the entire UK and give more to export as well? Yeah, I, I mean, we, I, it's, it's one of those things, we, we, we export
1: energy today, right? As a country, we export oil and gas. I mean, mm-hmm. and oil and gas is just stored energy, right? And mm-hmm. um, we can export energy that is captured by the wind. Uh, and this is um, something that we as a country will look at a lot over the coming decades because we are clearly a world leader in this particular area of, of uh, technology. So, what it means to, to, to really, so, so let's just start with, to answer your question, to start with our domestic needs. Let's not forget, and I always think it's important to, to remember this we're not just looking to replace the electricity that we generate from fossil fuels today with new sources. We also need to electrify. Our transport system. Um, we need to electrify our heating, and our and our demands for energy for heat and transport are much greater than our demands for energy for electricity are today. So we need to build an electricity system which is three to four times the size of the one that we currently have today in order to be at net zero in 2050. So. That means probably in terms of offshore wind, you know, 100 to 150 gigawatts, which is a huge number, right? So that's way more than our domestic needs on any given day, um, but, but ultimately enough to meet our peak demand. But what happens then when we don't need that energy? Well, we can turn it into something else. And there's a lot of work going on in the UK now around and, and around the world examining how we use hydrogen um as a, as a as a means to store energy so rather than just put those electrons onto the the grid you use it to produce something else that you can use at a different time and that is the 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 the, the whole uh, idea behind using green hydrogen uh which is basically a hydrogen production ele- uh, renewable electricity and then we can use that hydrogen either in the UK or we can export it um to use it in different things like fertilizers or in um it, it, in uh, hard to decarbonize sectors like steel and glass and cement manufacturing and then potentially also to use to generate electricity which is probably not the most efficient way of using it but all, but, but but we can use it to store energy so you've got these different means. So if you want a vision of the future, the vision would be that we have a very renewable dependent system with lots and lots of wind, lots and lots of solar, which is pro- providing the vast majority of the electricity that our people need and our businesses need. But then when we've got too much of that electricity, we're turning it into another commodity which we can trade.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, batteries are a uh, very interesting, um, very large storage. Um, how... I know the city of adelaide um has a massive uh battery that can power the city for a day um you know after a bet with Elon Musk that he could do it um <laughs> uh is battery uh, you know are battery storage solutions are a, a kind of um a feasible sort of long term solution um for for our energy needs in this country in terms of um not necessarily, you know, if even if we have excess beyond what we could export, but actually keeping some of that wind power in a battery for when we need it later—is is that um, a possibility? Uh, absolutely. In fact, the UK is also
1: one of the biggest markets in the world for battery storage and gr- and growing um, uh, significantly. There is a lot of developments uh, happening. Um, the UK is quite an attractive market for battery uh, storage, um, but. I think the way I, I try to think about it, one of the questions that gets asked of me a lot in the, my role in promoting renewables is, and, it, and it's quite a boring question because it gets asked by people who kind of think it's they're catching us out, but it's, what happens when the wind doesn't blow and then the sun doesn't shine? And um, I kind of like to point out two things at the beginning of my answer to that question. Number one is, well, what do we do now when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? That's that's also an option, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but also, you know, do you really think that all of these brilliant people and minds that have invented renewable energy and developed it and scaled it all over the world have only just realized that the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time? And, I mean, of course we know that, right? But if you look at a typical year, so you know, we have hundreds of years of, of weather data. Um, in in or certainly decades worth of weather data. So we can cast a, a view of what a fairly typical year is. And in a typical year, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine about seven weeks a year. So we, we know that, that that type of demand needs to be met by what we typically call long duration storage. I'll come back to that. Yep. Within a Within a given week or a given month in those other, where are we? For seven weeks, so the other 48, sorry, the other 45 weeks a year. Um, There may be days where there isn't enough wind and there isn't enough sun. And there may be days where there's too much. And, and really where batteries play a role is in that 40, 45 weeks a year where there isn't enough. So, and there isn't too much. So you can charge the battery to deal with the oversupply of electricity. And then you can discharge the battery to deal with the undersupply within that time frame. And the reason for that is batteries have limitations on the amount of electricity that they can store, the amount of space that they take up and and how much it's sort of reasonable to 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 uh, because typically they charge up and you can get about a half an hour or an hour of electricity out of a battery. Right. So you know that's the role that they will play is balancing in in the in the sort of within days or within weeks the 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 seven week problem is dealt with probably by something else which with with, with this is where the role of things like hydrogen or um you know di- um sort of air, compressed air energy storage and things which can be can, where we can store energy over seasons and discharge it over uh, for for long periods of time, and this this role is probably the more complex end of the energy transition, dealing with those seven weeks. But ultimately, there are engineering solutions out there to find to find a way to do it. But we're we're a long way from having that not particular that particular not crack.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, curious question here. Now we're we're in the borough of Camden in a very dense urban environment and. You know, it's not particularly windy. It's so certainly got no. You know, certainly doesn't. You know, does it's not the obvious candidate for wind. But would in in an average city like London or something, is there a role for any form of wind?
1: Well, the first thing is you know you're connected to a grid, right? right. Yeah. So <clears throat> so and and the, the the beauty of electricity is it can be transmitted over long distances. So mm-hmm. we don't need to build. Okay, wind wind farms in cities. Um, it, it, interestingly, there are there's probably a role for other forms of uh, you know uh, of energy within cities because one of the things you can't do with heat is transmit it over long distances. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a, a, a conversation that needs to be had about the role of seat networks and things like that within within urban areas to deal with to to, to move us away from using things like gas boilers. Um, and, and in, in other countries, you might often see a bit more um, infrastructure located close to urban areas. We just typically haven't done it very much in the UK. Um, and there may be also, there are all sorts of reasons for that, not, not least the kind of medieval nature of our cities and how they've grown and evolved. Whereas if you go to Scandinavia, the cities have got a huge amount of urban planning. So you'd often see a power plant in the middle of a city. Um, but in in terms of, and really my you know area of interest in that of renewable u k is in sort of large utility scale renewable energy but in in terms of what can be done at a domestic or a commercial and industrial level you know the role of solar within britain is is growing as well and as rapidly as as that of 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 wind um although you know arguably a slightly different job um but you know, and small-scale wind turbines—they can still play a role, albeit they're not probably as as you know financially attractive right now as um, as building large-scale wind farms and connecting to grid.
0: So that, that takes us to this um, point of other forms of renewable energy. Thinking of other forms of renewable energy, um, how about solar? Like, how, how promising is that for this nation? Do you think we could equally be able to? You know, to provide all the power we need from solar?
1: That there's enough of a challenge to transition our energy system away from fossil fuels that there's room for all technologies to come and play a role. And it's important to understand the different roles that, that the technology can play in order to answer that question. So, So wind is a very sort of, you know, it's a large scale infrastructure story, you know, very, very big power stations, offshore we're building massive pieces of infrastructure worth billions of pounds i mean this is a you know really really huge um, uh, power stations that we're building whereas solar is a much more distributed form of energy and it has a di- sort of distinct advantages therefore it can it can be positioned on rooftops very easily or in um certain uh, you know, in sort of agricultural settings or 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 in um in urban areas. So as much, you know, the, the advantage of being able to be located in multiple places, it has disadvantages as well. And that, you know, the typically what we call the load factor. So if you have a one megawatt solar panel, then you might get electricity out about 10 to 15% of the time, whereas on a wind turbine you might get it sort of forty to fifty percent of the time. So there are distinct there are distinctions there to be made, but one of the things in my mind, at least theoretically, which is exciting about solar is is the, is the fact that it is potentially a huge source of stored energy you know you, you imagine um, at home in you know you've got twenty eight million homes in Britain um, the government say I want to build hundred thousand homes a year. The other thing that we see a phenomenon of is you know, home shopping, which has led to an infinite amount of warehouse roof, roof, roof space in Britain. There's warehouses not, not far from where I live here, along the M62 corridor to, between Liverpool and Manchester. There are huge warehouses built, being, being built by all sorts of companies. These are just potential power stations in the, wait, in, in, in the waiting. And that if you've got them connected to batteries, you know, typically most people in those 28 million homes, they're not at home during the day right they're out mm-hmm. they're out working so if they've got a, a, a solar panel and a battery in their house then that can be a that can be a source of energy that can also play tunes on if you've got it connected to uh, um, you know you make your home connected to your electric vehicle and then not only is it turning your house into a power station but also a power station that can be dispatched and um you know traded according to maybe AI or you know various different um, services that you might procure. So for me, the home and the interplay with solar and batteries and digital intelligence layers could be a huge transformational effect on on actually how we how we use energy in this country. Mm, amazing.
0: What about other forms? Uh, you mentioned hydrogen earlier. Um, is that going to be a major part of our of our um, renewable? world going forward i mean it, it it's still really early days and there's a lot of talk about hydrogen
1: um and i, I think it's you know d- d- there's certainly an attractiveness to the idea that you can make if you if it's either hard to access the electricity grid or the electricity grid as a capacity that it, it that, that turning your green electron into a green molecule could be a very um attractive way of of solving that problem of production and demand and demand and supply meeting each other right for demand for electricity and to the supply of it right so if we can do that by converting into different fuels then that's definitely something that's very interesting but it's all it, it's also really early right and i yeah. think you know what we haven't seen yet is is large-scale deployment we haven't seen how the costs can come down we haven't started to really Look at the engineering solutions, the procurement solutions to how you get, you know, the, the, the technology like that down the cost curve. But it's still really interesting because we need hydrogen. We use a lot of it in the world for all sorts of different things, and we need it. We need to find a way to decarbonize our steel industry, for example, or our our glass industry. And these these are the types of solutions that we're going to need to find.
0: Fantastic and one and one other uh, we didn't we haven't touched on on um nuclear it, uh, would you consider does your organization consider that part of the renewable
1: i, I go back you know when yeah. it comes to nuclear, i go back to the point that I made earlier about you know there's 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 so much to do to transition that there's you know that we we need all of this stuff right yeah. and it, you know there are, again nuclear has got quite takes a long time to build you know it it's it's got it, but it's you know we've already got sort of fifteen to twenty percent of our electricity coming from nuclear today. Many of those stations are going to retire over the next few years so we you know that that we we're going to need to find you know ways to replace that electricity and and the thing that nuclear does and that you know we 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 hear about is nuclear you tend to switch a nuclear power station on and you leave it on for a very long time. Um and and that therefore it provides what we call in the industry baseload, you know, that 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 level um uh, of the if you if, if you like it as a as a stack or a cake, yeah. you know, it's the yeah. it's the bit at the bottom which is there. Um and then the renewables plays this more flexible role in 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 the system. So yeah, we we absolutely need that. We need we need to look and still pursue You know, exploring how tidal energy—we've got a huge tidal resource in this country. You know, Um, so the 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 River Severn, for example, is one of the uh, the biggest tidal range in the world. We've got you know we've got huge amounts of we've got plenty of waves. So there's lots of innovative technology being developed around um, around the UK in tidal energy. It's again early in terms of you know still very expensive, Um, but we you know UK could be a genuine leader in that technology. So we've got look, you know, this is one of the things about energy transition that that I think is 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 quite uplifting when you hear about all the challenges, but the reality is it's already cheaper than the alternatives. It's already, um, let's say, in the more mature, so wind and solar. It's already cheaper than gas. It's already cheaper than nuclear. It's already cheaper than sort of um, pretty much every alternative, and and then on top of that, it's. You know, it's there now, mature, scalable. You know, we we can answer the lion's share of the energy transition with technologies that are already available and that are already mature. And the question and the conversation really should move. And we haven't touched on this really, but the question should start to move: is how do we get the the people into the industry accessing the opportunities to develop careers around the country, getting the people getting more. Manufacturing jobs, for example, and building a supply chain that can really sort of cement that kind of long term economic and uh, opportunity and export opportunities, and all these kind of things that we as a country want to access. This is, you know, a great tool. Um, uh, the energy transition is not just a challenge, it's an enormous opportunity for innovation, technology, manufacturing, all of these things
0: that we, we want to see more of in Britain, right? Mm. So, what are the challenges to actually making all this happen? Especially for wind. Well, I, I guess the, the, the big challenges are um,
1: consenting. You know, get getting the permits through, and it's not necessarily whether you get the permits; it's about how long it takes. Um, we've got to build an awful lot of stuff in a relatively small period of time, and the processes that sit around consenting um, and uh, you know getting the right licenses in place is incredibly complicated. Um, the national grid is arguably the challenge, challenge number one. Um, and this is the same across the world, which actually makes it more complicated because we we need, as I said earlier, we need an electricity system, which is three to four times bigger than what it's historically been, which means we need a grid, which is capable of handling that much electricity. And we in Britain haven't built that much Grid infrastructure. Since we actually built the grid in the first place in the 1950s and 60s, so we're going to have to do a lot more. It's not enormously popular with people to see pylons being built. It's not as unpopular as you might think, but you know we are going to need to start to build the infrastructure that supports uh, the delivery of low carbon electricity. Um, and then the other challenges are people. You know we need we need skilled people in large numbers we need to we we think we need around a hundred thousand people to work in wind power by twenty thirty. uh we've got about thirty thousand today, so we've got to find seventy thousand people who are skilled who are willing to work maybe offshore or work in, um in, in sort of in di- you know all sorts of different disciplines, project managers, electricians um environmental engineers. We have to do an awful lot of work to make sure that we protect the environment while we're doing what we're doing, make protect maritime or marine life, protect bird life, all of this type of stuff. So there's huge multiplicity of jobs that we're going to be creating, which is actually really exciting. But it's uh they're kind of the big, the big, the big challenges. And and then final one is is really making sure we can get enough of the things that we need. Can we get enough wind turbines, enough vessels, enough uh, uh, substations, and all the various different bits of technology that we need, because we're not, even though I say we're a world leader, we're not in a vacuum. And America and you know Asia, uh, the rest of Europe, all building renewable energy at scale. So there's increasing competition for scarce commodities, and we need to make sure that we've got a plan for that. So that's,
0: that's sort of a bit of the challenges in a nutshell. So, are we going to reach the government's um, stated decarbonisation of the UK by twenty thirty five? Do you think that's realistic? Te- technically, it's it's possible. Absolutely, it's
1: possible and deliverable. And um, we're pretty, you know, focused on it. We've got enough wind farms in development um, that we can make that number. Um, I, and I, 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 the question is, can authorities move fast enough to get them consented to build the infrastructure we need to, to 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 build them um and can we build the national grid fast enough to be able to take those to to to, to meet that challenge they're, they're really the questions um but uh, as an optimist and and uh, this isn't blind optimism I think you know I, I I think generally yeah of course we can do it because yep. you know I I often go back to this when people ask me about oh, this we put we put someone on the moon for goodness sake. Of mm. course of course we can do this because we 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 we've got the ing- ingenuity and um the, the the will. Um it's just whether we we can you know we can make it happen and not let ourselves get, get in the way of ourselves really to be honest. Mm.
0: And sounds and- like we need to make some kind of competitive um uh framework to make all this happen because the British uh, and um yeah when in in you know when the opportunity's there to to lead, um, you usually take it.
1: Yeah, and and you know I don't want to under, underplay it. You know the, the, there's there's loads of channels, but I just I just think this is where you know human ingenuity comes to the fore, right? You know we mm-hmm. we gotta find ways. We can't run roughshod over communities, and 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 communities have to buy in because you know you just won't work unless you've got a social license to to, to practice. And at the same time. You know, we, we we've also we've also got to make sure we don't just, um, uh, you know, but just you know, sort of damage the environment. We want to make sure our projects and actually improve. And we talk a lot about net gain and making sure that putting a wind turbine in the sea actually results in an increased bird population, an increased maritime, uh, sorry, marine, uh ha- improved marine habitats. These are the types that we we have to work on to make sure it happens. But you know, from a, the the industry is actually you know, it's it's not doing this stuff because it, it it you know, it has to, it's doing this stuff because it wants to. We want to, to leave a genuine legacy and actually, you know, improve, um, you know, make an impact in communities which is positive. We want to make an impact on the environment, which is positive. And and if we do all that, then you know, then that social license will will be there and we will be able to make the twenty thirty five decarbonisation. that that's that is the challenge in front of
0: us. Well, I love your I love your optimism, and also love you know your belief that there is a lot more opportunity than um, than there are challenges in this transition to um, net zero. Thanks very much, Dan, for joining us here today.